If you have your copy of God's word, and I hope and trust that you do, go ahead and take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. It is the Passion Week. This is my favorite week of the year. This is the most important week in all of human history because it is this week on which our eternal destiny depends. It is the best week in the history of the world. It has the best day in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an eight-day week because it's Sunday to Sunday, triumphal entry to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the Gospels uh, just declare, even in the percentage of what they write, that this is the most important week. About 40%, almost 40% of all of the Gospels spend time on this specific week. Almost 40% of the ink that is spilled records what happened in this week. Think of Jesus's life, 33 and, uh, and some odd years that he's uh, alive. He ministered for three and a half years and he started the ministry around the age of 30. Uh, we have in the Bible recorded for us. So we know around 33 years, somewhere around there. We have a little bit about his birth. We have a little bit about when he was uh, a little older in the temple. And then we just have nothing until he's starting his public ministry. And then we have a couple of years of that. And then we have one week, one week, and the gospel just can't get enough. And I can't either. I love this week. Even in the book of Matthew, Matthew spends almost 30% of his gospel on this amazing week. We've looked at this week from a bunch of different angles together as a church. And so what I want to do this morning is instead of looking at it from a number of different angles that we've been able to do over the past almost 10 years now together, what I want to do is I want to meditate on one specific phrase and do a deep dive on that specific phrase. And it's found here in Matthew 21. Really, Matthew 21 gives us the entrance of what happened to begin this Passion Week. How did the Passion Week start? Well, it started here in Matthew 21 with the triumphal entry. So I want to read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And then we will dive in together after asking God's blessing on our time. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, they'd come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied there. Then a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is from Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle. Mounted on a donkey, even a colt. The foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? 
And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Father, we are so excited and so thankful for the privilege that we have yet again to dive into your word on the Lord's day and to celebrate and to remember your amazing kindness. Father, we get to do that this morning through the, the elements that we see before us through the Lord's Supper, that amazing, beautiful gift that you have given to the church of communion. But I pray that this morning, as we anticipate partaking of communion together, that you would stir in our hearts affections from your word that would lead us to partake of the Lord's Supper in a different way, with new affections, with with fresh desires raised because of what we see here in your word. I pray that you would give us depth into these verses, such a depth to these verses that we would see things that maybe we've never seen before, that we would feel things that we would appropriately feel in response to you and to seeing you, and that you would change us, transform us as we stare at Christ. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, please open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things now from your law. Apart from you doing that work, we will not see what we are supposed to see. So be gracious to open our eyes to see Christ. We want to be more like him. We want to love him. We want to serve him. So show us Christ. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen. Matthew 21 opens with Jesus and the disciples approaching Jerusalem. They have just spent weeks on a journey from Ephraim, uh, a city just a few miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, They had been hiding in Ephraim right after the raising of Lazarus. John 11, they were in Ephraim hiding after Jesus had raised Lazarus because Jesus became a fugitive. He was on the run. The religious leaders wanted to take, kidnap Uh, bring Jesus by force, and ultimately they wanted to try him and arrest him and bring him to a place where they could kill him and destroy him. And so he hides away in Ephraim, and then as he's getting ready to make his way just a few miles over to Jerusalem, what he does instead is instead of moving through that road, he goes the long way around. We've looked at this several times before as a church where he goes up through Samaria from Ephraim, through Galilee, around through the, uh, bypassing the the Sea of Galilee, through the Jordan River, going all along that road. And then he's uh, across where Jericho is. He's going to make his way over into Bethany and, and Bethpage, And then he's going to go into Jerusalem. He gets this huge crowd around him. It's this amazing journey. And they find themselves at the Mount of Olives, which is right uh, next to Jerusalem. And Jesus, on Sunday, says to two disciples in verse 2, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a colt tied there, and a, a donkey and a colt, so the mom and the baby. Untie them both and bring them to me. And I, every time I read this, you're familiar with this story. If you've maybe grown up in church or experienced uh, a service on Palm Sunday before, you're familiar with this. Every time I read this, I am blown away. And I just, I wish I could see the disciples' faces when Jesus asks them to do this. Two main questions would pop up if I'm a disciple. Question number one, why do you need a donkey now? 
You've been walking for weeks and you've been walking for miles without a donkey. And now we're just about a mile away from Jerusalem. Your final conclusion, the, the destination of where you've wanted to go this whole time. And now you need a donkey. We've gone from Ephraim through Samaria, through Galilee, down by the Jordan River, all the way to Bethany. And now you're tired. What's going on, Jesus? Second question I would have is, if you do need a donkey, why do you need us to take a donkey this way? Right? There's, there's got to be an option to rent a donkey, right? There's got to be out there some enterprise rent-a-car for donkeys. And you're telling us that we're going to go to a village, find a mom and a baby donkey, and just take them. That's called stealing, Jesus. <laughs> And you don't do this. You don't walk into a small village and do this unnoticed by people around you, right? You're going to be totally conspicuous. Everyone's going to see what you're doing. The disciples, just how many times in their lives as they walked with Jesus, did they think this isn't going to work? How many times did somebody say, yeah, we thought that the last time and it worked out just fine. We'll be okay. But this time they go, but no, not this one. This time Jesus has gone too far. There's no way this is going to work. And even as they're thinking that, Jesus says, uh, just tell them, verse 3, if anybody has a problem with this, just tell them the Lord has need of them. They've got to be thinking, that's a dumb phrase. There's no way that that password is going to get us out of stealing the donkeys. This just is a terrible idea. Two of them, we don't know who, they're tasked to do this. They go get the donkey and the colt. And their greatest fears are realized. Mark and Luke tell us that as they're untying the colt, which again, how would that have looked? Put yourself, just play this out in your mind. One of them's probably just untying. One of them's probably standing next to him. Just hurry up. Man. What? How is this going down? It's, they can't be doing this in the open. Mark and Luke tell us that as they're untying, somebody says, excuse me? <laughs> what are you doing? You're stealing my donkey and my baby donkey. What are you doing? I just, I wish, I, I pray that the DVD library in heaven has this moment because I want to see how they said what they said. We know that they said what Jesus told them to say, right? The secret password, the Lord has need of them. I just, I want to see how they said that. Did they say, the Lord has need of them? Did they, did they do a little maybe Jedi mind trick? The Lord has need of them, right? <laughs> I, I'm sure whoever these disciples were, I'm sure one of them is going, this isn't going to work. Somebody says, say what the master told us. And they go, this isn't going to work. And he goes, the Lord has need of him. And it works. It works. I wish I could have seen their response after it worked. Somebody probably hit the other disciple on the shoulder. Ha, told you it was going to work. You know what else we don't get to see? When the donkey and the colt are taken back to these owners. We don't know how that interaction happened. Just imagine the owner going, so how'd it go? What a story these disciples would have had to say. Just, you, you should have been there. And maybe they were there. Maybe they said, hey, you can have the donkey and the colt. Where are you going? And they followed them. We don't know. But we do know what happened. Jesus would ride into the city he was sitting on the colt, so precious of Jesus to, to say, take both. 
Take the baby donkey. I need to ride on the baby donkey because that's a fulfillment of prophecy. But don't take the baby away from the mom. Take both of them. So they're both riding together. Jesus is sitting on the colt. The people shout, Hosanna, Hoshana, save us now. Please be our savior. They quote Psalm 118, Hoshana to the son of David. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wave palm branches signifying the victory of their Messiah. The king has come and we will be released from our bondage to Rome. They throw their coats in the middle of the road, almost signifying, you know, walk all over us. We'll submit to you as king. Do whatever you tell us to do and uh, we will do it. Tell us whatever you want. But through it all, they missed what Jesus was doing. They thought that Jesus was the political ruler. They missed that he is the savior of the world. The very reason Jesus is coming is here in these verses. And I don't want us to miss what the majority of the crowds missed. It's in verse five, which is a quotation of Zechariah 9.9. It's the ninth of 10 specific prophecies that Matthew gives us from the Old Testament that Jesus is explicitly fulfilling. He is the Messiah. He is the king. But the Jews wanted a specific kind of Messiah, a political ruler, and only a political ruler, someone to do their bidding and work for them. And this prophecy confronts that understanding. This prophecy in verse 5 confronts three main realities about what we think Jesus should be. And in doing so, these three realities from this precious verse will tell us how we must follow Jesus. If we are to submit to Jesus, follow him as Savior and Lord, we need to do it on his terms. So, what does verse 5 tell us about how we must interact with Jesus? Three realities. Number one, if we're going to follow Jesus on his terms, number one, we must submit to Jesus as king. We must submit to Jesus as king. Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, behold, your king is coming to you. He's your king. The Jews wanted Jesus to be their political ruler, their liberator, to free them from the oppressive Romans. But Jesus is coming saying, I am your king, but I'm going to reign the way that I see best, not necessarily the way that you want me to. We do the exact same thing as the Jews in this passage. We do the exact same thing. We often come to Jesus wanting something from him. I want you to be my consultant, be my helper, give me advice, be my spiritual life coach, be my inspiration. Jesus would say to you this morning, I can be way more than that. I can be your brother, biblically, your friend, your shepherd, but I will not be any of those things to you unless I am first your king. Have you ever noticed how humble Jesus is when he speaks in the gospels to other people, other than the Pharisees? And even with them, he's gracious at many points. But he's so humble. He's so kind. He's so modest in the way that he speaks to people. 
But have you ever noticed when he speaks about himself, there's not an ounce of modesty about his claims for himself. He says, I'm God and I'm your king. No modesty there. He says, I'm the king of the universe. Have you noticed in the gospels, Jesus is always forcing his identity onto the people around him. He's doing that this morning. He's forcing his identity onto you. He is your king. And because of that, the only way that we can respond to Jesus is either we take all of him or none of him. You cannot look at a king and say, I think you're pretty cool. I like you, but you're not my king. You can't do that. You either, in the words of Revelation, you're either hot or you're cold. You're not lukewarm. You're not in the middle of going, I like him. Jesus did not come to the earth and die and rise from the dead to be liked. You either crown him as king or you kill him as a madman, but you cannot just like him. And that's what this verse is saying. He is your king. This is the way it necessarily has to be. I love the way that one dear sister several years ago, Barbara Boyd used to say it. She worked with uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the 70s. And she used to say this, quote, if the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper. Okay, get this image in your mind. So the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun is the thickness of a piece of paper. Do you realize that the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy alone would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a tiny little speck in the universe. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter one, that Jesus holds the universe together with the very word of his power. So she would say, do you ask somebody like that to be your assistant in life? Do you ask somebody like that who has all of the authority and all the power, he is God, very God. Do you say, I'll take a little bit of your assistance, but I don't need all of you. Can I ask you this morning, where is it in your life that you're wanting Jesus to be your assistant? You're not willing to submit to him as king. Jesus has said to you in his word, this is how you must live. This is what you must do. And you've said, thanks, that's good advice. And I'll see if I want to live according to it. Where is it in your life where you feel like Jesus isn't serving your needs? Where like the first century Jews, you were saying, but Jesus... That's great that that's what you want to be, but I wanted you to be this. And you're letting me down. He is your king. And he's reminding you this morning in verse five that he has come to you. He is your king. Unless you receive him as king, by the way, you'll never experience real, genuine growth You'll never experience true, deep soul satisfaction. You will never experience invincible joy if Jesus is not your king. Unless you're submitting to him, there will be no transformational power in your life at all. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, I was just reading this with my son. We've been going through the book of Acts together. We're in Acts 19 this, this last week. And uh, we read through about a chapter a day, sometimes two, sometimes three. Um, 
we're reading through Acts 19. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. You guys know it, the sons of Sceva, right? The seven sons of Sceva. Paul's going around doing all of these miracles, exercising demons in the name of Jesus. And there are people around Paul that go, man, this guy's got power. I want this power. What can I do to tap into this power? And they keep hearing Paul say, in the name of Jesus, and they think Jesus is just some talisman, some magical password that can give them the secret power. And so the seven sons of Sceva go to this demon-possessed man, and they say, by the power of Jesus, and the apostle Paul uses his name by his power, um, I command you, be gone. And do you guys remember what the demon says? The demon goes, I know who Paul is. He's been destroying our work recently. And I know who Jesus is. He's the king of kings. I've never heard of you. Who are you? And they, we're the sons of Sceva. And we, we know Jesus. And uh, by the power of Jesus, be gone. And, and there, there's a battle that ensues. And you remember the demon uh, just beats up on the seven people. And I love it because it says that they leave, the seven of them leave Wound, quote, wounded and naked. I love that. Because if you ever get into a fight with somebody, you're all beat up and you're thinking, you know what, that was rough. But you can always say, when somebody says to you, man, looks like you've been through something, you can always say, yeah, you should see the other guy. Right? You can always say that. You can't say that if you're naked, right? You can't say that. This is defiance on the part of the demon saying, I'm going to make sure that no one, no one could possibly think that you won. Beats them up, they run, around, they run away naked. They takes all their clothes. Why did that happen? Why did Acts 19 happen? Why did the sons of Sceva go through this? Because they thought that Jesus was a commodity, a secret password that you could use to gain power. If I just say the name of Jesus, I have power and authority. They wanted to use Jesus as some magical weapon, but they didn't want to submit to him as king. They didn't love Jesus. They just loved the idea that Jesus could work for them and do something that they wanted him to do. And if you are asking Jesus for help and strength in your life, but you're not obeying him, enjoying him, joyfully submitting to him as king, then in essence, you're doing the exact same thing that the sons of Sceva did. You're just conjuring up magic. That's what you're trying to do. And it'll never work without submission. So if you are truly to follow Jesus, number one, you must submit to him as king. Number two, you must be transformed by his character and work. You must be transformed by the character and work of your king. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must be transformed by his character and by his work. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is your king, but look at how he is coming to you. He's gentle. And he's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. He's gentle. Your king is coming to you not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Who rides on a donkey? Donkeys are the butt of the joke. Donkeys are what the sidekicks ride, not the main character of the story. Again, I just, I got to think that one of the disciples said, who's doing PR for Jesus? Because they failed when they decided Jesus is going to ride in on a donkey. This is not a good look for the Messiah, for the King. Why does Jesus ride in on a donkey? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis 49, it was prophesied that he would. Genesis 49 verses 9 through 12 
describe a great king that's going to come from the lineage of Judah. It says this, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as, he crouches and lies down as a, a lion, as a lion. Who would dare to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until the coming one. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And then it says this. So the, there is going to be a king who's going to come. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to tie his colt to the vine. A donkey's colt to the choice vine. So get this picture in your mind. He's going to tie his baby donkey. So he's going to ride on a baby donkey. And he's going to tie that donkey to a vine. But it's the choice vine. It's the best vine out there. So what is he going to do? He's going to say, hey, park the donkey here and you can eat on this vine. And it's the best vine that there is. And he says, you can have the best vine. Why? Because there's so much goodness and prosperity in the, in the kingdom of this king. He washes his garments in wine. So wine is so overflowing in this kingdom that he can wash his garments in it. He can treat wine as if it were, you know, dirty water. It's so uh, uh, profuse. The, the, the way in which the wine is going throughout the world, and it's beautiful, it's perfect. He can dip his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth are white from milk. That, that prophecy says there is a coming king who's going to ride on a donkey. That will be his ride. And the kingdom's going to be so prosperous. He'll be able to tie the donkey to a choice vine. He'll be able to wash his garments in wine. But why a donkey? Zechariah 9.9 picks up on that. Zechariah 9.9 is what's quoted here. He's going to ride on a colt. Why is he going to do it? Because key word in verse five is that he's gentle. He's gentle. Any general who's going to ride into battle on a donkey, just picture that in your mind. Picture a massive war and you've got generals on the one side that are just on white steeds and they're ready to ride in with their cavalry. And then you've got the hero of the other army feet almost touching the ground, sitting on a donkey. Just everybody looking around must be going, you got the wrong ride. You've got the wrong horse here. This isn't the way you're supposed to do it. Anyone who's going to ride into battle on a donkey is going to be slaughtered. They're going to be vulnerable. They're going to be defenseless. And that's the point here. To be gentle is to be defenseless. There is a prefiguring here on Sunday of what Jesus is going to do on Friday. He's going to be like a lamb led to slaughter. He's going to be silent. Jesus is going to be defenseless and gentle on the cross. He is our king, but he looks like a servant here. Because on Friday, he will be our suffering servant and die for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. God puts himself in our place. The king comes and puts himself in the place of his servants. Servants should be riding on donkeys, and the king says, I'll take that place. He came not to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we stare at his work and his character, he is gentle and his work is one of defenseless gentleness. 
as we stare at his character and his work, if you really truly see this, you see the paradoxical nature of Jesus as king, but as selfless servant, you will be transformed. You must be transformed. If you receive Jesus as your king and submit to him, you will be transformed because you will see your sin now in light of what Jesus is doing. You'll see your sin for what it truly is. Sin, we say it a lot at our church. It's quoting R.C. Sproul. Sin is cosmic treason. It's the creature saying to the creator, I wish you were dead and I wish I could take over in your place. I could rule the world better than you. Another way to say it in light of what we're reading here is that sin is servants putting themselves in place of the king. He is the king acting like a servant and we as servants say the exact opposite. We act like king. Salvation then must be the exact opposite of what we're doing. Salvation has to be the king saying, I'm going to put myself in the place of the servants because the servants keep putting themselves in my place. This is... This is why evil exists in our world. This is why tragedy that we've seen even this last week exists. This is why on a wide scale level, uh, the evil that we've seen, the atrocities over the years, the Holocaust is caused because there are creatures that are making themselves out to be God. They say, we know the best types of people that should exist in the world. And so we're going to do something about it. It's creatures, it's servants saying, I could be God. I could be king. That, that's why wide-scale evil happens. That's also why personal, interpersonal conflict evil happens. That's why evil without even another person being in your world happens. Your anxiety is caused because you as a servant to the king, you're saying, king, I think I know better than you and you're not doing it the way I want you to do it. Sin is us as servants putting ourselves in the place of the king. So what are we going to do about our sin? We recognize that we do this. We recognize that it is an offense against the king. It is fighting against the God of the universe. What are we going to do about it? What, what does every religion say? Every religion in the world, what's their answer? Their answer is, oh, just stop putting yourself in the place of the king. Try harder. Be better. Just stop that. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that that advice is absolutely worthless. <laughs> Just stop doing the bad things you're doing. Okay, I'll try. Tomorrow, I fail. It's like putting a Band-Aid over an open chest wound. It's not going to do anything. That's why the only way that you and I can be saved is if the king takes the place of the servants to transform their very heart. And so Jesus does that. He doesn't save us through his strength of victory. He saves us through his weakness of dying. Crucifixion wasn't the stamp of failure on Jesus being king. It was the arena in which Jesus won his victory. So when you choose to follow Jesus, you are choosing to follow a king who wins by dying. And if you see Jesus doing that for you, you'll see sin for what it is and you'll hate it. And then you'll want to be like the one who saved you. You want to love him and you want to love others the way that he has loved you. He is a gentle, lowly, humble, servant-hearted king. And so I want to ask you this morning, 
What does your character and your work look like? Is it gentle, humble, lowly, servant-hearted? Have you been turned into a gentle follower of Jesus because he being your gentle king has served you? Do you look like Jesus in how you respond to the people around you? Are you glad to give up your own rights to love and to serve others? How gentle are you? How humble and lowly are you? Corey Ten Boom was once asked if it was difficult for her to be humble. You remember Corey Ten Boom? Uh, she um, lived in one of the concentration camps and, and she survived. And when she came out, she started speaking uh, around the world, telling people about Jesus. She got saved. She was um, telling people about how Jesus had saved her how he had spared her, how he had protected her, how he had preserved her. And she's speaking to all these crowds and somebody said, it's gotta be hard for you to stay humble because look at all of the impact that you're having. And this is her reply, quote, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments onto the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of this going on was for him? If I could be the donkey on which Jesus rides into his glory, I just want to give him all the praise and all the honor. How humble are you? How gentle and lowly are you? How much do you serve those around you with the kind of service that Christ has given to us? We saw this last week with regard to pride and self-sufficiency. If you're in the middle of a trial and you're struggling going through that trial, uh, you can see your own sense of self-sufficiency and your own pride on display in how you walk through that trial. If you're going through trials and suffering and you feel like you are the center of the world, then you are either going to feel like God has let you down because you're awesome and you were doing everything right and you were trying hard and God didn't keep his end of the bargain, but let you go through suffering. Or you're going to feel mad because somehow you must have messed up such that you deserve this suffering. You deserve these trials. But if you are humble, then you will realize God himself condescended, came to earth and he experienced trials and suffering. Not because he deserved it. He was the least deserving of anyone who ever existed. But because of his love. So that he could take every trial and every form of suffering and transform it into something that would work for his glory and for our greatest good. Our pride also shows itself in our interpersonal conflict. If you're prideful, you're not humble, you're not gentle, you're not lowly like Christ. If you're prideful and self-sufficient, then when somebody hurts you, and it is a when, because we're all sinners, we're all fallen people, but when somebody offends you, when somebody hurts you, you will either be too arrogant to forgive them, you know, saying, I, I can't believe I was ever treated this way. I mean, look at who I am, look at who they are. I can't believe they would treat me this way. And you're too arrogant to forgive, or you'll be too bitter to forgive them can't believe somebody would mess up that badly and offend me. Therefore, I will never extend forgiveness to them. That's why I say, if you're going to truly follow Jesus on his terms, you submit to his, him as king, and then you stare at who he is, his person and his work. Look at his character. Look at his work. His character is gentle and lowly, and his work is one of servant-hearted humility. And he did that for you and for me. People who are way worse than we could possibly comprehend. We are more sinful than we even think that we are. And at the exact same time, we are more loved than we could ever dare dream. God of the universe looks at you and me and says, I know your sin and I love you.
I love you. So if we are going to follow Jesus on his terms, we need to, number one, submit to him as king. Your king is coming to you. He is the king. The Jews thought that he was going to be a political ruler. He was going to conquer their political enemies. And he says, I'm coming to do something else. And they said, that's not really what we want. Thanks anyway. If you're going to follow Jesus on his terms, you need to submit to him as king. If you're going to follow Jesus on his terms, you need to be transformed by his character. His character is one of gentleness, humility, lowliness, and his work is one of servant-hearted humility. Number three, if you are going to follow him on his terms, you must long for him to come again. You must long for him, wait for him, expectantly, hopefully, wait for him to come again. Zechariah 9.9 is the quote here. Your king is coming to you. That was a prophecy in Zechariah 9. And it was fulfilled in the triumphal entry. Zechariah 9.10, just one verse later, is a prophecy about Jesus' second coming. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and I will speak peace to the nations, and my dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He's going to speak peace. He's going to bring peace. He hasn't done that yet, but he's going to. Just as surely as Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled in his first coming, so too Zechariah 9.10 will be fulfilled in his second coming. Even the palm branches signify this. They were a symbol of victory, but they're also a reminder to us. Psalm 95, Isaiah 55, Romans 8, all talk about the creation wanting redemption. And when that redemption comes, it will rejoice. Creation will rejoice. The rocks will sing. The mountains will rejoice. And the trees will wave their branches as their king comes to obliterate evil and bring redemption. We see, you know, even this last week, the tornadoes that are going on in our country. Creation groans. I don't want that to happen. That's not what I was designed for. And one day God will show up and say, enough. On the last day, the mountains will sing. Creations, creation will rejoice. When Christ comes back, this world will burst into what it was supposed to be. Everything that it was supposed to be, it will become. There's a new creation coming, we sang. It is. And you and me will burst into what we're supposed to be. Jonathan Edwards, I love how he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. He says that right now we have five senses and maybe on that day, just like all of creation will be redeemed, maybe on that day our bodies in redemption will have a hundred senses. We don't know. But as marvelous as all of this will be, Jesus will come again. We've seen this in our study of Revelation, in our study of Daniel. He is coming back. And just as surely as he was prophesied to come in Zechariah 9 and 9, 9, and he showed up just like he said he would, so too he has been prophesied to come again and he will show up again. But when he does, of all of the marvelous and miraculous things that will take place when Jesus shows up in his second coming, I want to show you what I think is the most mind-blowing reality of what Jesus will do when he comes again. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 12. What is Jesus going to do when he comes again? He is coming again. And so if you are a citizen of his kingdom, you're going to long for his return. You've submitted to him as king. You've been changed and transformed by him. 
And you're going to want his return. You're going to want to live with him. What will he do when he comes again? He's going to do a lot of things. But I think the most amazing reality of what Jesus is going to do when he comes again is Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says, be dressed, be ready. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. So be ready, get ready. That's why we as believers, as citizens of his kingdom must be longing for and hoping for and waiting for his return. Then he says this, verse 37, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, that he, the master, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he will come up and will wait on them. Masters do not serve their slaves. They don't even thank their slaves. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus says, if you are a slave, do you expect to be thanked? No, you would simply say, I've done what I was told to do. And yet Jesus here says, I as your master, I as your king coming to you will serve you. Turn to Luke 22. He says the same thing again in Luke 22, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant, which is exactly what he has done for us. Because, verse 27, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? So he's saying the one who's reclining, being served, is the greater. But... I am among you as the one who serves. I'm here now, Jesus is saying, as the one who's serving you. This is in his first coming. And then he says in Luke chapter 12, I will be the one in my second coming who will serve you yet again. Maybe we're tempted to think that Jesus' serving of us stopped at his ascension. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and his serving of us stopped. But you and I know that that's not true because Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's still serving you and me right now. And when he comes again to bring us into his kingdom with glorified bodies to enjoy him forevermore, he says, I'm still gonna be serving you. It doesn't end. The king of kings, the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the upholder of the universe is going to continually take the form of a servant to make our greatest joy his greatest aim. Why? Because, as John Piper says, the giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. So he, being the only one in the universe who doesn't need anything, can lavish upon us with grace the gifts that he would love to give to us. We will never be benefactors of God. He alone is the all-sufficient, all-supplying, gracious giver. He will always be the shepherd and we will always be the sheep. He will never surrender, even at his glorious second coming, he will never surrender the glory of being free from needing anything. He will never be in our debt. 
So our king who gently and graciously came the first time to serve us says, brothers and sisters, I'm going to come a second time to serve you yet again. I'm going to serve you yet again. How could you not long for someone like that to come and be with you forever? If you know that Jesus is your king and you have submitted to him and you are being transformed by him, by his character and his work, then you will long to be with him again. And if you are here this morning and you know that Jesus is king, but maybe you haven't submitted to him, maybe even as we look at these short little verses, these couple of words in this, in this passage, maybe you're looking going, okay, I have seen that Jesus is my king, but I treat him functionally as my you know, personal trainer. He's just my assistant, my life coach. This morning, Jesus would say to you, no, I am your king. I'm your king. And you either crown me as king or you can kill me as a madman, but you can't just like me. But my friends, I would just plead with you. If you look at the nature of Jesus, if you stare at his person and his work, you will joyfully and gladly submit to him. You'll long to be a citizen of his kingdom. You'll surrender your will to him in a heartbeat because you will see that he surrendered everything to get you. That's what we celebrate this morning as we remember through these communion elements, the love of our Savior, the service that he provided on the cross to love us humbly, gently, defenseless, dying for us so that we too, by being transformed by his character, we can look like him, act like him, long for him to return so that we can one day be with him forever. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your kindness that you in humility served us when we didn't even know the need that we had. You served us when we could not serve ourselves. You loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so often we forget that. So often we forget. And so we want to remember this morning, not only through your word, but we want to remember through these elements that you have graciously given to us so that we could be confronted in our obstinance. These elements confront our understanding of how we receive you. We don't receive you as a snack. We receive you as a life-giving bread without which we will not survive. We receive you desperately needing you. We receive you hopeful, knowing that a new covenant has been made that we get to be a part of because you did all the work to make it so. So Father, I pray that by your grace, as we, as we meditate and ponder on these elements and then partake together as a church family, that we would do so with love and gratitude in our hearts for the King of Kings who served us and does so still and always will. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. We love you, we pray it in your name. Amen.